right, Matthew 5, and we're going through the Sermon on the Mount, uh, and we're in this section where Jesus is correcting the false interpretations of the Old Testament that were being bantied about in his own day. And so, uh, anyway, this is the section that we're in, and he's giving the true proper interpretation of the Old Testament and of Moses, the one that Moses taught in his own day as well. And this is what he's been doing. And we're at this point where he's talking about retaliation and love of your enemies. Okay, so verse 38 is where we'll pick up tonight. And we'll read down through verse 48. So Matthew chapter 5, we'll start reading in verse 38. And there it says, You have heard that it was said, An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, Turn to him the other also, and if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even tax collectors do the same? And if, if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, uh, we pray that you would impart to us, Lord, true wisdom tonight. Uh, Lord, wisdom uh, that does not merely impact our mind and the way that we think, but also uh, the way that we live. Lord, that reaches down to our very hearts and changes, uh, Lord, everything about us, uh, our thoughts, our words, our actions, uh, Lord, that we might walk in your ways. Uh, Lord, teach us to uh, trust in you, Lord, to not uh, seek to uh, gain vengeance on our own, Lord, to not repay evil with evil, but rather to trust and to wait patiently Lord, for you to grant justice to your elect. Uh, Lord, knowing that you will bring all of those things into the light uh, on the day of judgment. So, Lord, may we not be hasty and may we not uh, seek to uh, rectify the wrongs done to us in an unjust and in a sinful way, but rather uh, trust in the means you have provided and ultimately, Lord, in your sovereignty and your providence over all things. Lord, as well, we pray that you would help us to uh, love our neighbor as ourself, and Lord, even to love our enemies and those who hate us and who persecute us. Uh, Lord, we pray that you would uh, cause the love that we have to be like your love. Lord, you love both the just and the unjust. Lord, both the righteous and the wicked in that you give good things uh, to all men. And so, Lord, may we be like you, our Father in heaven, who gives good to all. So may we also, understanding the right context, Lord, do good to all men as well, uh, and not uh, be those who are seeking evil, and Lord, those who are seeking their own vengeance. So Lord, teach us tonight uh, these passages, Lord, what they mean, what they do not, that we might have a clear and accurate understanding of what it is that you require of us, so that we can walk in your ways and do those things that are pleasing in your sight, and it is in Christ's name that we pray, amen. <coughs> Okay, Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 through 48. We began this passage last week 
uh, in verses 38, but we didn't finish it. Uh, we got cut short. And so we're going to just pick up there again uh, where he's teaching concerning uh, personal vengeance, right? Private revenge. It's very important that we understand what he's talking about and what he's not talking about because these passages uh, are prone to be uh, manipulated on one side or the other, right? People use it in one way and people might use it in another way. And in both ways, it's corrupt. So we have to understand exactly what is he talking about? How does it apply, right? What is he not talking about? What, what other verses apply to these uh, other situations so that we have a full and an accurate understanding of the will of God in whatever context that we're dealing with, okay? So that's very, very important for us to understand. And again, we remember, as I said earlier, that he is not adding something that was foreign or unknown to the law. He's simply correcting false interpretations that were being uh, taught and that were being passed around in his own day. Uh, and we'll see that in both of these teachings, there are also Old Testament expectations for people to do what Jesus is teaching here. So this is not a New Testament ethic or an ethic that is only for Christians, but it was foreign to the Old Testament and to the expectation in the Old Testament. This is what God requires in every generation. Every generation of people who have lived from Adam to the end of the world, no one was ever to seek personal vengeance. No one was ever to do that. And in every generation from Adam to the end of the world, men were to love their enemies and to do good to those who hate them and persecute them. That this has always been expected of all people in all times and all true Christians from Adam to the end of the world, this is a part of their righteousness, right? This is the righteousness that must exceed that of the Pharisees for us to enter into the kingdom of heaven. This is the type of love that we have to have to prove that we are children of God. We have to be perfect as our heavenly father is perfect. So the love that we have must exceed and excel the love that is present in the world, right? There is love in the world, even among unbelievers, although it's not ultimately true love because true love must always have as its object the glory of God, and they don't have that. But there is a type of love that exists even among unbelievers, among unbelieving husbands and wives, unbelieving parents with their children, unbelieving family members, unbelieving friends, that they know how to do good to one another. And so, of course, we should expect that to be true in the Christian church as well. But also our love should excel theirs. It should be greater than theirs. There should be distinctions in the things that we do in contrast to the love that we see in this present world. And that's what he's teaching here. This wasn't being taught. It wasn't being expected of the people during his day from their false teachers, the scribes and Pharisees. They're teaching a subpar, a, a deficient view of love and a deficient view of justice and righteousness, right? They're, they're not teaching the people correctly because they themselves are unbelievers and they don't want to practice this kind of righteousness that is consistent with the law of Moses. So that's what Jesus is teaching and instructing in all of this passage, but here in these sections as well. So let's pick up in verse 38. And again, I know we, we dealt with a, this in part last week, so we'll just kind of recap and hit a couple of passages to refresh our memory, but we won't, uh, we'll, and then we'll move on uh, to the next. So verse 38, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Now, again, you have heard that it was said in the Old Testament, right? In the law of Moses, this is indeed the teaching that is found in the law of Moses. And in the present day, even after the day of Pentecost or after the time of Christ, 
there is still a context in a situation where an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth is the right application of the law of God and what God expects. So it was said of those of old, or you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. So does the Bible indeed teach that this principle of justice is something that should be operating in this present world? Deuteronomy chapter 19. Deuteronomy chapter 19 and verse 15. Deuteronomy 19 and verse 15. says, A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. If a malicious witness arises to accuse a person of wrongdoing, then both parties to the dispute shall appear before the Lord, before the priests and the judges who are in office in those days. The judges shall inquire diligently, and if the witness is a false witness and has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him as he had meant to do to his brother. So you shall purge the evil from your midst, and the rest shall hear and fear and shall never again commit any such evil among you. Your eyes shall not pity. It shall be life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. Now here, we notice that obviously the context here is not interpersonal relationships. That's not what he's dealing with. He's not dealing with one neighbor with the other neighbor and a feud that they might have between one another. He's not dealing with a husband and the relationship to his wife or the wife to her husband or a father to his son. He's not talking about interpersonal relationships. He's talking here in the context of the governing authorities, the officials, the judges, those who are to investigate whenever there is a crime that has been committed, whenever a public sin, a public offense has been committed that is worthy of some punishment, right? So this has to be a sin that's against the law of God, that has been committed and it has to be investigated, right? It's not enough for one person to come and charge a man with committing this evil. It must be investigated and there must be witnesses to establish the credibility of the charge, right? And then if there is a malicious witness, one who comes and is subverting justice and righteousness, right? That's the whole point of what they're seeking here. Whenever we're investigating, whenever we're trying to establish what is going on and we're talking to people, to various ones who have information and we gather that information, it is so that we can understand and get an accurate depiction of what is taking place. This has to take place in the court of law. That's why they call the witnesses and the witnesses go and they go under oath. They present their testimony and their evidence and then with the evidence, the jury or the judge is able to look at the situation and determine whether or not this man who is on trial is guilty or innocent. If he's guilty, then he needs to be punished. If he's innocent, then he needs to be exonerated, right? That's the context that we're dealing with here. If there's a malicious witness, it subverts justice so that you cannot determine the truth, right? Which you have to have access to the truth in order to make an accurate ruling, right? And if it's found that he's malicious, then you should do to him as he meant to do to his brother. If he charged his brother with murder, when in, indeed he is the murderer, 
or he's an accessory to it, or he's just lying because someone bribed him to do these things. And this is what would have happened to the innocent man had his testimony won the day, then that's what should happen to the witness. And he says, you shall not pity him, right? You shall not pity him. Now, does this mean that in no context are Christians to ever have pity or mercy on anyone? Of course not. It cannot be, right? Isn't that what happened when the parable of the Good Samaritan, when he saw the man that was beaten left on the side of the road, he had pity on him. He had compassion on him and he went and helped him. But we're not talking about interpersonal relationships. We're talking about a court of law. We're talking about justice and trying to determine whenever there is a crime that has been committed, then you shall not pity him. Meaning the judges, the rulers, those who are given authority by God to execute justice on criminals, they are not to have pity on the criminal, but rather are to give to that man justice according to his crime. Not excessive, but also not less than what is deserved, but accurate justice according to the crime he has committed. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, life for life. Whatever he has done, so it should be done to him. Now that's in the context of what? Of a court proceeding, right? The rule of law, justice, righteousness in society, right? And not somebody going out as a vigilante on his own and just going out and wreaking havoc on everyone and getting justice. Someone wronged me, so I'm going to go get my due. That's not what he's talking about here. It can't be because it has to be brought before who? The judges, right? The judges, the rulers, the priests, those who have been appointed to serve in this capacity, it has to go through the proper channels. And then when it goes through the proper channels, then it is eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, and life for life. So that is what is taught in the Old Testament. For this particular context in the court of law, this is what is to rule and govern the judges and rulers when they are executing justice in the land against those who have committed a crime. That's the principle that should guide them. And this is what we should expect of our authorities as well, is that whenever there is a crime committed, that the punishment for that crime is fitting, a fitting punishment for the crime. True justice, true righteousness. This is what we need, and this is what is absent in our own day, right? This isn't happening today, and that's why you see so much evil being committed in our own day. Now, can anyone reading that then conclude, okay, because it teaches eye for eye and tooth for tooth, therefore, if anyone does something to me, I have the right from God to go out and get justice for my own, for myself. Go out and get vengeance against all of my enemies. And somebody wronged me, so I'm going to go out and I'm going to get my due. This guy cheated me, right? He said he was going to do this and he didn't do it. So now I'm going to go take it on my own and I'm going to go get what is mine. There's no way reading this that you could come to that conclusion. But that's what's being taught. This is the false interpretation, the false application of a passage when it's intended for one situation, but now they're applying it to another situation. And that's what Jesus is correcting. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. There is a place for vengeance, but it has to be in the proper, the proper authorities. 
right? The proper institution that has been appointed by God. And vengeance in and of itself is not evil. If it's pursued correctly, if it's pursued rightly, actually vengeance is an attribute of God. And in such, it is a glory of God. It is something that makes God glorious, that God gets vengeance on his adversaries. Deuteronomy 32. Deuteronomy chapter 32. If this is something that God possesses or God has, then it cannot be evil because God cannot sin and God is not evil at all. So vengeance in and of itself is not evil whenever there is a true injustice, a true sin that has been committed, then vengeance is required by the justice of God. Deuteronomy 32, verse 35. Vengeance is mine and recompense. For the time when their foot shall slip, for the day of their calamity is hand is at hand, and their doom comes swiftly. So vengeance is mine. It belongs to God, and God is the one who will get it. He will repay. He will get recompense whenever he causes the foot of the evildoer to slip and their calamity will come and then God will bring them to doom. Now, in this present world, there are many evils that are committed and God has given for the sake of the social order, right? For the sake of sanity on earth, there, there is a proper outlet for us to pursue justice and vengeance whenever we are wronged in this present world. And that proper channel is not my own authority, right? Not my own arm, not the gun that I'm carrying in my pocket or the knife that I have in my hand. That's not the proper avenue to pursue vengeance and justice. The proper avenue is the ruling authorities. The ruling authorities are appointed by God with authority to execute criminals to be the avengers of God on this earth, the one that God uses to get vengeance against evildoers in this present life. Romans chapter 13. Romans chapter 13. This is the role of the governing authorities. The role, the role of the governing authority. The, not a role, the role of the governing authorities, not all the other things that they do. This is what they ought to be doing. Romans 13, verse 1, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger, who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. So there, the authority is a servant of God. And his role as God's servant is to be God's arm of vengeance in this present world. Vengeance against wrongdoers, evildoers, to carry out God's wrath, to punish wrongdoers with proper punishments, even up to the point of capital punishment, even to the point of death. That's why he doesn't bear the sword in vain. 
God has given and armed him with the sword, with the authority to take life in order to execute criminals up to the point of public execution if necessary. Now, every crime isn't worthy of public execution by the, by the civil authorities, but up to that, right? That is the greatest punishment that can be inflicted under the laws of the land is the death penalty. And then anything up to that that is necessary, they have the authority to do. So they are the avengers who get vengeance on behalf of the innocent against their enemies, against their adversaries, against the wicked. And that is what they are supposed to do under the authority of God. So if someone wrongs us and we can appeal to the authorities, go to the police and they investigate it and they hand it over and it's taken to trial and then the criminal is found to be guilty and then the judge uh, puts a punishment on him, then that's good and fine, right? That's not evil. He's not saying in our passage in Matthew 5 that, that Christians can never pursue justice in this world. Otherwise, it doesn't make sense with Romans chapter 13. Then why do we have ruling authorities that are avengers and servants of God? If we, if we can't appeal to them to help us, of course we can appeal to them. And we should appeal to them if it's possible. So if there is a legitimate wrong, a legitimate evil committed against us, and we can appeal to the ruling authorities for justice, and they grant to us justice, then this is the will of God. It is the will of God, and God is the one ultimately that is giving us vengeance, right? We're not circumventing God because we're going through the proper means that has been established by God. God is the one that is ultimately granting vengeance to us through the ruling authorities when they execute the criminal, okay? So that's the proper channel, the proper outlet for us to pursue justice and vengeance in this present world. But what if we're denied? What if the ruling authorities deny us justice? What if the judge is corrupt and he's bribed or the person that committed the crime is very wealthy and he has access to very high class lawyers and they're able to get things thrown out on technicalities and do the types of maneuvers that they're able to do in the courts so that justice is denied to the innocent and then we have no vengeance from God. What are we supposed to do then? Then we leave it to God. Then we leave it to God and we know that ultimately on the day of judgment, God will grant vengeance for all of the crimes committed against his children. This would be Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. And while we're waiting for that, what are we supposed to do? We're supposed to bless, not curse, live at peace, don't be anxious about it, trust and leave it to God. And if the occasion arises for us to do good to our enemy, then we should even do good to them. And in so doing, we're going to heap greater judgment and condemnation on their head on the day of judgment, okay? Romans 12, 14. Bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, 
but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. That's our passage from Deuteronomy 32, 35. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So there, if there is no vengeance, if there is no justice from the authorities, then don't repay him evil for evil, but do what is honorable in the sight of all. And know that God will give you vengeance on the day of judgment. And then while you wait, if the need arises. Now, he's not talking about buying uh, Christmas gifts for your enemies. He's not talking about having them over for dinner and acting like nothing happened. He's not saying you forget about what has happened and that you don't talk about the evil. It can't be that. No way. But if he's hungry, if he's in a desperate situation of hunger then you give him something to eat. If he's thirsty, right? Now, again, commonly, day in and day out, is this something that is happening with many people, that they're, they're so thirsty, they're to the point of expiring, where they're in a desperate situation. It's not, it's not common. But if that arises, and there is some desperate need, your enemy is in an emergency, he's languishing away because of hunger or from thirst, and you have the means to help him, then you should help him. And when you do, you're going to heap burning coals on his head. You're going to increase his judgment because it's going to make it evident on the day of judgment that what he did to you, he had no basis for doing because you're a good person. You're a loving person. You repaid his evil with good. And what he did was unjust to you. And that's the way that you should do it. You overcome their evil by doing good to them. That's the same context that we're dealing with here in Matthew chapter 5, right? You have heard that it was said, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Here, what Jesus is forbidding is personal, private revenge for personal, private offenses that are committed against us. Many of these offenses, there are many times where there may not be an outlet for justice in this life. There are going to be evils committed against us in this life that there's nothing that we can do about it. Right? There's nowhere that we can go. Right? When people do stuff in the church, and they say horrible things about us. What are we going to call the police and say, could you go investigate this guy? Because he got on Facebook and he says some nasty things about me. What are they going to do? They're going to, they're going to laugh at us, right? Say, no, get out of here. Scram. So, so what, are, what are we going to do? Get on and say some nasty things about them? We're going to go egg their car, slash their tires, shoot their dog? Well, we can't do any of those things, right? So what do you do? You just leave it to God. Leave it to the Lord, right? He did evil to you. But you don't respond in like kind. Right. You don't. He's throwing mud at you. You don't throw mud back. He slaps you on the right cheek. You don't slap him back. You turn to him the other also. Now, again, in this, he doesn't mean that you have to let him pummel you to death if he's trying to hurt your body. But this is in a, a, the situation where you, you're, there's anger and he responds with a slap 
he spits on you. He does something like that. But it's not something where he's attacking you and trying to beat you. At that point, then you need to protect your life and do whatever is necessary to preserve yourself and to get away from this person. But here he's talking about an outburst of anger where someone might reach over and slap you in anger, but that's as far as it goes. Well, if he slaps you on the right cheek, should you slap him back? No, you walk away. You walk away and you don't respond in the same way as what he did. He curses you, so you don't curse back. He screams at you, he shouts at you, you don't start screaming at him back. You control yourself. You exercise self-control. Now, this is what we're dealing with here. They don't have self-control because they're unbelievers. But we have the Spirit in us, and we're supposed to have the fruit of the Spirit. So they do something to you. You don't retaliate in like kind. Don't repay evil with evil, because when these things happen, when these things rise, especially when we're trying to pursue righteousness, our enemies, the wicked, they're going to start fomenting at the mouth frothing, fomenting, cursing God, cursing us, screaming, shouting, doing all these types of things, even maybe slapping us, spitting on us, right? They might do these kinds of things. Well, when they do that, you don't repay. Don't repay evil with evil. That's what we read from 1 Peter chapter 2, 18 to 25 on Sunday morning. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. They reviled him. They cursed him. They spit on him. They punched him, but he didn't respond. He didn't retaliate and do the things that they were doing. He did not stoop down to that level. That's what Jesus is talking about here. Do not retaliate in like kind with the wicked. When they're doing these types of things to you, you don't respond and do the same things that they are doing, but rather you have to exercise self-control. Proverbs chapter 15. Proverbs chapter 15. And verse 1. A soft answer turns away wrath, but harsh words stir up anger. The soft answer turns away wrath. That's the way that we have to respond in these situations. We have to have the self-control. We have to be composed. We can't lose our cool. We can't get angry and wrathful and, and do the things that they're doing. They're screaming at us. They're using harsh words against us. They're threatening violence against us. Well, we can't respond the way that they do. But instead, we need to have a soft answer. A soft answer will turn away wrath. Now, he doesn't say a, a false answer. He doesn't say lie. We should never lie. We need to speak truthfully. And if what they're doing is evil, we need to tell them that it's evil, but we don't have to curse them in order to do that. Right? We don't have, and I mean curse them in an evil way. I don't mean curse them in a right way, but use swear words, call them names, call them idiots, call them uh, ignoramuses, all the types of things that people like to do. Now, we shouldn't do those types of things. Also, then on verse 40, when he says, um, he gives here different examples, right? The principle is don't resist the one who is evil. Then one is if he slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other also. If anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. Now, again, he cannot mean 
that anyone who wants to exploit us, embezzle from us, that we just have to let people take all of our possessions. There's no way that Jesus can mean that. But I think this would be similar to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. First Corinthians 6, verse 1. When one of you has agreements against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers, but brother goes to law against brother and that before unbelievers? To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. So here, why not suffer a wrong? Why not be defrauded? than to have these types of trivial lawsuits, right? So that's, I think, what Jesus is talking about here. Whenever these types of situations arise and we're trying to determine who's right and who's wrong, you are actually in the right, but justice is being subverted and you're not, it's not winning the day, then don't huff and puff about it, right? Don't, uh, stoop to their level, but rather leave it to God. Leave it to God, and in the end, he's going to vindicate you and prove your righteousness. He can't mean that if someone's breaking into your house, stealing your goods, that you should say, okay, I've got more goods in here. Why don't you take them as well? Here, let me go down to the bank, and I'll get all my money out, and I'll give that to you, and you can take it as well. There's no way that he means that. He just means, again, whenever these things are happening, and someone is suing you to take your tunic, right? And, and and you are defrauded in this way, then just leave it to God. Leave it to God. And if justice doesn't win the day and you, are, you have been wronged, but there's nothing you can do about it, then leave it to God and he's going to work it out in the end. And then also, if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Here, this would be like Mark chapter 15. Mark chapter 15 and verse 21. When Jesus was going to the place of crucifixion, he couldn't carry his cross there, so they forced a bystander to carry his cross for him. 1521, and they compelled a passerby, Simon of Serene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. Here are the soldiers. The soldiers, the officers, they forced this man. He doesn't have anything to do with what's going on. He's just coming in from the country, minding his own business, but they compel him and force him to undertake this task and to carry this cross out for, for him. And this is what an officer or a soldier might do to a citizen. He might interrupt his day. You've got plans. You, you've got things that you need to do. Then all of a sudden, this soldier comes and compels you to carry his load for a mile. Well, he says, go to. 
right? Go above and beyond, right? Go and, and do this. And when you do, your reputation, right? He's going to see that and, and it, it's going to surprise him. It's going to shock him. Instead of griping and complaining the whole time, because you're going to have to do it anyway, so you might as well be cheerful about it. You might as well do it and make the most of it. And instead of just going a mile, go to with him, right? Go to, and while you're walking with him, talk about the things of God, right? Do those kinds of things and make the most of it, right? Don't be so consumed with your own rights and what's, what is your own due that you're constantly carping, harping, complaining, whining about all of these situations when it's outside of your control. Just do what you need to do, right? Go above and beyond. Show love, exceptional, uncommon love to this man, right? If he forces you to go a mile, then go to with him and give to the one who begs from you. Do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Be gracious in your outlook toward other people. Be gracious, be considerate, compassionate, have pity, have care and concern for your fellow man. And if someone is begging, do give to him, give to him. And if someone needs to borrow from you, do not refuse him and don't exact and expect interest from him, but do what is good and right. And if it happens that his situation turns and he's unable to repay you, then just let it go. Let it go and don't be so consumed with your own money, your own wealth, your own rights, your own position, your own life that you don't think about other people. Don't be so consumed with what is your right, your retaliation, that you're not loving others. So this is what he's talking about. You need to love your neighbor as yourself and treat others as better than yourself in the way that we relate to one another on a day-to-day -day basis. Ecclesiastes chapter 11, verse 1. Ecclesiastes chapter 11, verse 1 says, Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. Cast your bread upon the waters, and you will find it after many days. Right? He who lends, or he who gives to the poor, lends to the Lord, right? Lends to the Lord, and God will repay him. God will repay him. So, don't be consumed with your own self-interest, your own life, to the extent that you neglect others and the needs of others and you have no care and concern for other people. Again, he's not saying there isn't a place for us to be concerned with our own life, with our own affairs, with our own family, with our own wealth, right? With what we need to do for our own livelihood. Of course, we, we need to be doing those things but not to the exclusion of our neighbor and even of our enemies and even of strangers. We need to have an eye for other people and do good to them and love our neighbor as ourselves and consider others as more important and as better than ourselves. Now, this passage is used by many to teach a kind of Christianity that is very passive, a passive Christianity or an exploitative Christianity that we need to be punching bags for the world that if someone is doing evil against us we just have to roll over and take it and that we can never defend ourselves but here again he's dealing with this desire to exact personal vengeance and revenge 
That's what he's talking about here. And of course, we should not do that. So some take the passage, an eye for an eye, and they misapply it wrongly to private offenses. And then they seek to go out and exact justice on their own, and Jesus is forbidding that. Now, there's other people who do the opposite. And what they do is they take this passage, which says, turn the other cheek, and then they apply it to the government, and they say that we should uh, not seek justice in this present life, but that we should be compassionate toward criminals, and, and that we shouldn't seek justice and vengeance, and, and, but instead we ought to have pity for criminals, and we need to let them out and not punish them and give them a second chance and a third chance and do those kinds of things. And they'll use this passage to defend that. But this passage isn't regulating the judges in the way the courts are supposed to treat criminals. This is talking about the way that we're to relate to one another. So this can happen one way or the other. You can take an eye for an eye, which is a passage for the government and how they are to respond to criminals, and you can misapply that and then use it to justify vigilante justice where I'm going out just getting vengeance on my own. Or you can take turn the other cheek misapply it to the government, and the result is there's injustice all across the land and criminals are not being punished. We shouldn't do either of those things. And what's more common today is the second one, right? The second one where people are taking this and saying we need to be merciful, we need to be compassionate, we need to do those types of things uh, for the criminals and help them and let them out and try to reform them, and it doesn't work. Right? And all that you do is you're letting criminals out and then putting people in impossible situations where they're having to deal with the dregs of society over and over and over again, and they commit more and more crimes. And then it leads to more chaos, more havoc, more confusion in the world. And that's not what we should do. I heard someone say once, if we practice an eye for an eye, then every, everyone will die. An eye for an eye and everyone dies. That was a teaching of Gandhi. And this was a person arguing against the death penalty. So there you go. Well, why should we accept anything Gandhi says? One, he wasn't even a Christian, and he didn't know what he's talking about. And secondly, who says an eye for an eye and everyone dies? If it's done rightly, if it's done according to the proper authorities and with true justice and with evidence, right, in a court proceeding, then that's what we should practice, but not in our personal life. In our personal life, we should turn the other cheek. Now, a couple of passages for us to consider. One, self-defense. What about self-defense? Is it okay for Christians to defend themselves? Here, I said, when it says, if someone slaps you, turn the other cheek, he's meaning this in the sense of an argument, an outburst, a one-time outburst, not someone who's attacking you and trying to inflict bodily harm upon your body. If someone is pummeling you, punching you repeatedly, and they're not stopping, then you need to do whatever is necessary to stop that person from harming your body, right? Because you're supposed to love your neighbor as yourself, and no one ever hated his own body. If someone is trying to punch me repeatedly in the face or kick me in the gut when I'm down, then that's not good for my body. That's actually very bad for my body, and whatever is necessary to stop him from doing that, that's what I need to do. Now, I don't need to respond with excessive violence or excessive force. If I can push him and run away from him, then get away from him and then go get the proper authorities and let them go and deal with him. But if I have to punch him back 
in order to get him off of me, then punch him back. If I have to restrain him in some way to get him off of me, then restrain him. Or if it's a child or a woman, and she's, because there's crazy women out there as well. They're all over the place. Just look, you find them all over the internet. Anyway, they're attacking police officers. They're doing this type of stuff. Okay, well, then do what's necessary. Now, not excessive, not knock them down and start kicking them and stomping them in the head. We shouldn't do that. But whatever is necessary to defuse the situation, to protect innocent life, even your own innocent life, or the life of your family, do what is necessary. And even if that reaches to the point of taking a life, then we have to do that. If an intruder is breaking into my home in the middle of the night, that is not the time to turn the other cheek. It's not the time to preach the gospel to him. It's not the time to pray for him and have a Bible study. If he's breaking into my house in the middle of the night, then I have to assume what? He's there to do harm to me and my family. And I'm supposed to love my neighbor as myself. And isn't my wife and my children, are they not my neighbor? Aren't they my closest neighbors? So don't I have an obligation to love them? So what do I need to do to that man? Shoot him, right, if I have a gun. Do whatever it takes to diffuse the situation so that harm doesn't come to my family, right? That's what needs to be done. And the Bible teaches this as well. So anyone who uses this passage to teach against self-defense is corrupting and polluting the Bible, the word of Christ, because Jesus taught, yes, he taught turn the other cheek, but Jesus also taught Exodus chapter 22. Exodus chapter 22 and verse 22. Exodus 22 and verse 2. If a thief is found breaking in and is struck so that he dies, there shall be no blood guilt for him. But if the sun has risen on him, there shall be blood guilt for him. He shall surely pay. If he has nothing, then he should be sold for his theft. So if he's breaking in and is struck so that he dies, then there is no blood guilt. If he's breaking in in the middle of the night. right? If he's stealing something during the day and then you go and kill him, then there will be blood guilt because that's excessive. That's excessive to kill him. If he's over there trying to steal your cow and you shoot him, then that's excessive. Right now, if you can uh, get him and bind him and then call the authorities and have them arrest him, then that's good and fine. But if he's doing it in the middle of the night, you have to assume that he's got he he's up to no good. And and if he's doing it in the middle of the night, then and he's breaking into your house, that he's there to do harm to you and to your family. And that's why there's no blood guilt because you're defending yourself against him. You're preserving and protecting the innocent life. You're minding your own business. You're trying to sleep in the middle of the night with your family and he's breaking in. So he deserves to die in that situation and there's no blood guilt at all. Also, uh, Luke chapter 22, Luke chapter 22. Luke 22. And verse 36. Uh, he said to them, But from now on, let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack. 
And let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. And they said, look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said, it is enough. So here Jesus is telling his disciples when they're going to go out into the world, then they're going to need to take a sword with them because there are going to be times when they're traveling here and there and there are going to be bandits, robbers, people who are threatening them and they're going to need to defend themselves against those kinds of people. Whatever threats there are, they're going to need to defend themselves even against other people, right? Even against human threats. And why should they be killed needlessly when they're going around doing good for everyone, going around preaching the gospel? Right? That's not loving to let them die needlessly when, and, and the criminal get away and for his life to be spared. Okay, also, a couple of passages. John chapter 18, here we see that in the court of law, Jesus, whenever... He was unjustly treated. He did not remain silent about it, but he spoke up and defended his own innocence and also the injustice that was committed against him, the crime. John 18, verse 22 says, When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, if what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? So here, this striking Jesus is like what he's talking about here. He struck him on the right cheek. Now, Jesus doesn't punch him back, but he also doesn't just let it go. He confronts the man and says, right, if what I've said is wrong, if, what I'm, if my testimony is a false testimony, then bear witness in the court of law in the proper proceeding against what I said and prove it. But if what I said is not wrong, why are you punching me, right? Why are you hitting me? So he's confronting the man on what he's doing. So when he says, turn the other cheek, he doesn't mean that we never talk about evil, we never talk about sin, or we're not even talking about the evil that's taking place in, in our very presence. Because Jesus doesn't do that whenever an injustice is committed against him. But Jesus didn't curse the man. He didn't spit on him. He didn't revile him. He didn't punch him back. He didn't start cussing at him. He didn't do any of those things. He confronted him and said, this isn't right, what you just did. But he did so in a sober, calm, in a reasonable way. Also, the Apostle Paul did the same thing in Acts chapter 23 when he was unjustly struck uh, in the face. He confronted the man as well. And then one last thing, uh, what about when he says give? Give to those who beg from you. Does he mean give without discernment? Does he mean give uh, without any uh, considering of the person, the situation, what is taking place? And he cannot, he cannot mean that. From 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 5. 1 Timothy chapter 5. First Timothy five verse three 
It says, honor widows who are truly widows, but if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents. For this is pleasing in the sight of God. She who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. Command these things as well, so that they may be without reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband, and having a reputation for good works. If she has brought up her children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work. But refuse to enroll younger widows, for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry and so incur condemnation, having abandoned their former faith. Besides this, they learn to be idlers, going from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies, saying what they should not. So I would have the younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. For some have already strayed after Satan. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. So here, even in the context of the church, there is proper procedures, protocols, order for how funds are to be uh, distributed and administered to those who are in need. So it's not just anyone who has a need, regardless of the situation, we need to fork over all of our money to them. That's not what he's teaching here. He's talking about those who have legitimate needs. Legitimate needs, then we have an obligation uh, to help them. Another passage would be 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. Second Thessalonians chapter three and verse six it says, now we command you brothers in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not according with the tradition you've received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor, we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we did not have that right, but to give to you and ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. So here, well, if someone is idle and not working, not willing to work, then won't he be hungry? He's not going to have any money. He's not going to be able to buy any food. So if he does that long enough, then he's going to have to beg in order to get food. Well, he says if he's not willing to work, then he shouldn't eat. So that person who's begging because they refuse to work, then he's saying we shouldn't help that person. We should not give them anything at all. And that would be contrary to the teaching of the apostle if we did give them something. So when he's talking about those who are begging, he means those who have a legitimate reason for this situation, this situation in life, some affliction, some ailment, like we see in the Bible, uh, a person who is lame, he can't walk. Well, how's he going to be able to work? 
He's blind. He can't work. He has no family to care for him. There are people who are brought to that situation who are so destitute that there's no one to care for them. And because of some affliction, they're unable to work and provide for themselves. Well, that person has a legitimate need. So what should you do? Then you should help them or some catastrophe happens to them, right? There's some uh, dire situation that comes about. Maybe uh, a fire comes through and burns their entire field down and they lose all of their crops. Then what should we do? We should rally the troops and help them and do whatever is necessary in order to see them through until they get to the next season, right? Because this was something that wasn't their fault. It was a catastrophe. Some disaster came upon them. Then we should help them and do whatever we can in that way and not exploit them, not exploit the situation, but help and care for our brothers. So in this, he doesn't mean no discernment. He's just speaking in these ways to emphasize the point, which is not retaliate, but love and to do good to other to other people. Okay, verse 43. 757 already? Okay, well... We're going to stop there then, and uh, that was just a recap of last week. You know, we didn't get, we didn't do very much of that one last week, and there's a lot of confusion, a lot of misinterpretations and confusion on these two passages, especially. These two passages are some of the most misquoted, misunderstood passages in the entire Bible. These, along with uh, "Judge not, lest you be judged," "Turn the other cheek," right? "Love your enemy." People don't understand what these things mean. And that's why it's so necessary for us to look at many passages, to look at other passages that give us more understanding for this situation, for this situation. We have to understand how this applies. What's the situation? What's the expectation here so that we have a full and accurate understanding and there's nothing lacking in our doctrine or in our practice. So that's why it's necessary for us to so thoroughly examine these uh, passages. And so we'll do that uh, next week uh, in verse 43 to 48, where he's talking about love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Love and hate. And uh, what does that what does that mean to love? What does it mean to hate? And how are we supposed to practice those things properly before God uh, with the Bible? Okay, so we'll stop there for tonight. And we have a few minutes for any questions or comments that anyone might have. So we can take those uh, 